This is KGNU's Morning Magazine. It's Tuesday, February 28th of 2023. I'm your host, Shannon Young. Coming up on today's program, a CU law professor specializing in technology policy walks us through two cases before the Supreme Court that seek to define technology companies' liability when platforms become part of recruiting efforts for violent groups. This Week in Water examines new concerns about contaminants from the train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, that stay in the ground for a long time. And we'll hear from the listeners who called our comment line. At the bottom of the hour, we'll have an update from the BBC News headlines, then it's How on Earth. Today's science show features a discussion about generative AI technologies like Chat, GPT, and DALI. At 9 a.m. comes another archival recording of British philosopher Alan Watts. Then at 9.30, Neil Smart will be in the Boulder studio for the Morning Sound Alternative. All that's still ahead, but first it's time for the headlines with KGNU's John Kellen. A suspect in a shooting near the CU campus in Boulder last night is still at large. Police say the shooting occurred just before 10.30 and sent an adult male to the hospital with life-threatening injuries. CU Boulder sent out a total of five alerts via their CU Alerts system. One of them, just after midnight, said report of an armed suspect on campus South UMC. All dorm residents shelter in place. Avoid area. The Boulder police described the suspect as a heavy-set white male in his 20s wearing a heavy winter jacket with long brown hair. The university sent out a final alert just before 12.30 a.m., noting police had cleared CU family housing and calling it safe to resume normal activities. Defense attorneys for the man accused of killing 10 people in a Boulder King Supers say he's been diagnosed with schizophrenia. 23-year-old Ahmad Alyssa is charged in the March 2021 murders. In a court filing earlier this month, his lawyers say four mental health experts found Alyssa is schizophrenic, with one describing him as near catatonic while in jail in the aftermath of the shooting. He has since been moved to a state mental hospital. Since being moved to that hospital, experts have said he's not competent to stand trial. They say he can't understand legal proceedings and participate in his defense. Alyssa is accused of opening fire with an automatic weapon and killing employees, customers, and a police officer who tried to stop the shooting. Former employees of the Club Q nightclub in Colorado Springs say they've not received their fair shares of money raised through a crowdsourcing effort after the deadly mass shooting there in November. The employees say that after the shootings when the club had to close, owner Matthew Haynes told them he would make sure they'd be okay financially. Colorado Newsline is reporting that Haynes raised more than $55,000 from a GoFundMe drive. Several of the former employees say they've received $1,000 or less, while others say they haven't received anything at all. The Denver Post reports the Club Q GoFundMe page does say some of the money raised will go to remodeling and to a memorial for the shooting victims. A bill to improve access to mental health treatment in Colorado has sailed through both houses of the state legislature and is now awaiting Governor Polis's signature. The state house approved HB 23-1071 yesterday after changes made by the state Senate. The bill's supporters say it will allow qualified psychologists to prescribe mental health medications to those patients who need it. Under existing law, only doctors and psychiatrists can issue prescriptions. Boulder Representative Judy Amable says it will, quote, 
bridge a gap in mental health care access by helping Coloradans receive treatment faster. The State House has also approved a measure that would give local governments the power to develop rent stabilization policies tailored to their own communities. House Bill 1115 passed on a 40-24 to 24 vote yesterday and goes next to the State Senate. If approved and then signed by the governor, it would reverse current law, which prevents local rent control ordinances on private housing. Advocates say it would help families stay in their homes and build the communities they want. Two Colorado hospitals and all their facilities are about to end mask requirements three years after the start of COVID-19. KGNU's Steve Miller has more. Both Denver Health and UC Health hospitals will end face mask requirements for asymptomatic patients, visitors, staff, partners, and volunteers in all of their facilities tomorrow, March 1st. All are welcome to continue wearing masks if they prefer. Channel 9 reports that UC Health feels that since Colorado is experiencing substantial decreases in COVID-19 cases and influenza cases, now was the time to discontinue the mask mandate. Denver Health's decision to lift the masking policy relies on there being no significant changes in epidemiological trends and is subject to change should any community respiratory virus infection rate rises. UC Health and Denver Health are still requiring any patient who has an infectious disease to wear a mask, and any staff members or providers who care for those patients will be required to wear appropriate personal protective equipment. They will continue to promote anyone experiencing cold, flu, and other respiratory symptoms, or who is not fully vaccinated, to continue wearing a mask. For KGNU, I'm Steve Miller. A Colorado man is suing the Chaffee County Sheriff's Department and several other law enforcement agencies for alleged excessive force during an arrest. KGNU's Alyssa Palazzo has the story. Chaffee County Police pulled over 30-year-old Ellis Athanas as he said he was driving home from the gym. Police body camera video shows officers wearing tactical gear approaching the car with guns drawn. According to the Denver Post, Afanas put his hands out of the driver's side window, but an officer detonated a so-called, quote, flashbang device just outside the window in order to subdue him. Afanas, following his arrest, became nauseous, developed a severe headache, and collapsed in transit to jail. He was later diagnosed with a concussion. Kevin Mayer, Afanas's attorney, told the Denver Post that the Chafee County Sheriff's sergeant wrongly claimed Afanas's criminal history to, quote, justify the high-risk traffic stop. Athanas's arrest warrant was a day old at the time of the arrest. A judge dismissed the charges, ruling insufficient evidence. Athanas's attorney calls the incident, quote, an alarming display of the militarization of the police in the United States. For KGNU, I'm Alyssa Palazzo. Newly released body cam video shows that Littleton police earlier this month waited nearly five minutes to help a suspect they had shot. That suspect, 41-year-old Stephen Poulsen, later died from his wounds. Police originally said they responded to a suspicious vehicle call and witnessed Poulsen crash the motorcycle he rode. But the Denver Post reports the video released yesterday shows the officer ramming into Poulsen's motorcycle and then chasing him behind an apartment building. Police also said that Poulsen pulled a gun. The video is not clear on that point, but the Post says an officer is heard saying, Don't shoot. 
The incident remains under investigation, and the officer who shot Poulsen is on paid administrative leave. In Boulder County, a 50-year-old snowboarder reported missing has been found alive. The man, who was not identified, spent more than 24 hours in the wilderness before being located near Nederland Monday night. The weather forecast for this final day of the month, mostly sunny skies in the area with a slight chance of snow showers before noon. Expect another windy day with gusts of up to 50 miles an hour in places. 43 degrees, the high temperature in Boulder, 50 in Denver, 46 degrees high in Fort Collins, and in Nederland, expect a high of about 25 degrees. For KGNU, I'm John Kellen. You are listening to The Morning Magazine on KGNU. I'm your host, Shannon Young. The Supreme Court heard arguments last week that could determine liability for Internet companies when their platforms host content that promotes violence. It's the first time the Supreme Court has considered a challenge under Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. The justices heard arguments for two cases, one against Twitter and another against Google, both involving online radicalization and ISIS killings. Some legal experts refer to Section 230 as the 26 words that created the Internet and argue it grants immunity to Internet providers for user-posted content. But the Internet is a very different platform now than it was in 1996 when the law came into effect. Joining me now to walk us through the cases is Blake Reed, clinical professor of law at CU Boulder, specializing in technology policy and telecom and disability law. Good morning. Good morning. It's really nice to be with you. Well, thank you for being here. Can you start us off by giving listeners an overview of the two technology cases that went before the Supreme Court last week and 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 their significance? Yeah, so there's two cases, and these come out of the same set of facts, which are um, families of uh, victims of terrorism and, and ISIS in particular. And the plaintiffs in these cases are are, are the, the families, and they allege that uh, social media platforms, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, contributed to the death of their family members by uh, allowing ISIS to be on the platforms and materially contributing uh, to, to ISIS, under uh, which is illegal under a law called the Anti-Terrorism Act. And the question that came up in these cases is whether the platforms can be held liable um, in a sort of abstract sense because ISIS uh, uses them. So in SCOTUS's discussion, the analogy of classifying the Internet as either a bookstore or a newspaper came up. Can you explain these analogies? Yeah. So the idea is, if you imagine 25 years ago before the commercial Internet and you think about a bookstore, um, a lot of books come through a bookstore and the bookstore owner doesn't read everything in all of the books. And so something might come into the bookstore uh, that's got, say, a defamatory comment in it. Some There's a book about someone and it de- defames them. Um, the courts had long made the decision not to hold the bookstore liable for failing to have read the entire book and, uh, and fact check everything in it because bookstores have lots of books. On the other hand, a newspaper that is choosing who to print in its editorial page, for example, uh, be held to a higher standard for fact-checking what is said. And so the reason the justices were grappling with this analogy is they're trying to think about, well, 
what are these internet sites uh, that process, whether it's videos or social media posts or, um, frankly, anything else that users might post on the internet? Do they look more like bookstores? Do they look more like uh, newspapers or are they something else entirely? Well, I think this gets to the crux of the issue of how you we are sometimes tasked with countering disinformation because bloggers follow very different rules than broadcasters. We're liable for for you know def- defamation and slander and and what have you, and we're not following the same rule book as some of these bloggers. And I know this is an area of law that's still very much evolving. But do you think? radicalization would would stop or would lessen if the internet were more regulated well i think the the thing is the the platforms and the biggest platforms in particular so google youtube facebook um twitter uh, although maybe less so under under elon musk's regime actually do a quite a lot to counter disinformation and misinformation they have fairly large and elaborate uh, teams and systems and and people. There's a whole field called trust and safety of people that work on uh, trying to eliminate disinformation and misinformation from these platforms. And Section 230 actually helps them do that because it says, hey, we want to encourage you to do this kind of thing. And if you make a mistake and miss something, so as though you are a bookstore owner who's actually going through and trying to read most of the books and find the problems uh, before they hit the shelves, but you occasionally miss one, we actually want to encourage you to do that. So we're not going to hold you liable just because you missed something. Um, So the question when you say more regulation is of what kind, and Section 230 actually provides some pretty strong encouragement for for platforms, especially at scale, to, to do this work. You, uh, I, I'm wondering, like, what would more regulation of the internet mean for just everyday users? Well, I mean, so I think what's actually at stake in this case is probably not more regulation, but the absence of Section 230. So the court is poised perhaps to roll back Section 230. And there's two likelihoods. Um, One is the platforms that we use, and it's not just Google, Facebook, Twitter, but it's just about anything you use on the internet, whether it's to uh, upload images to share with your family, or whether it's to store your files or email or anything else where users upload content, they're now going to face a choice if Section 230 does not protect them, which is they might err in the side of moderating a lot more about taking a lot of things down. So if they see content that looks like it might be terrorist content or it might be defamatory or any of the other kinds of of laws that, that your content might violate, they might just err on the side of taking it down. So we might see platforms take a lot more down. Or we might see platforms take a lot less down and say, we don't want to know about what's happening on our platforms. We don't because that knowledge might uh, create liability for us. So we're going to do less. Or we might actually see a lot of platforms go out of business or never get started because they say, gee, people are going to sue us all the time. And now we don't have the protection of Section 230 to say, hey, you have to go to the user that posted illegal content. It doesn't really make sense for us to start up in this environment. So that's the those are the directions that are possible. And of course, the Supreme Court may not go that far. We'll just have to wait and see. 
So as we're noticing, you, you specialize in an area of law that, that seems like it's being defined in real time, more so mm-hmm. than, than many other legal areas. I'm curious if you have any other reflections that you'd like to share with our audience before we wrap up. Well, it's just very interesting to see the Supreme Court justices, and I encourage folks to listen into the oral arguments in the Gonzalez case. Um, They had a pretty uh, smart read on what the stakes were, and they had a pretty good uh, understanding of how the the internet works and and, and sort of what was at stake. So um, it's a really uh, it's a really interesting and important time, and the 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 future of the internet kind of hangs in the balance. I've been speaking with Blake Reed, CU Boulder Law Professor specializing in technology policy. Professor Reed, thank you for making time for us this morning. Thanks for having me. You are listening to The Morning Magazine on KGNU. I'm your host, Shannon Young. Up next is This Week in Water. Time now for the latest edition of This Week in Water with Jamie Sudler and Franny Halperin. William Shakespeare, eco-warrior? That story and more on H2O Radio's weekly news report. I'm Jamie Sudler. I'm Franny Halperin, and it's This Week in Water. The first anniversary of the war in Ukraine has passed, and its effects on the people and the environment will last for generations to come. Thousands of people have been killed, millions displaced, and ecosystems degraded. Water systems and farmlands are polluted, threatening not just Ukraine, but neighboring countries. According to a preliminary report from the UN, damage has been done to nuclear power plants, oil pipeline storage and refining facilities, and industrial sites that stored hazardous materials, including solvents, ammonia, and plastics. The Russian invasion has caused vast damage from ammunition shells that leach chemicals into the soil to flooded coal mines that pollute groundwater. Some of the hardest hit areas are in the southern and eastern regions with the most fertile soil. Parts of the country are covered with landmines, making farming difficult and affecting food security. And demining efforts are taking place in residential areas first. Mines in the Black Sea threaten marine life and shipping. Among other problems, the Ukrainian government reported that there are 3,000 destroyed Russian tanks and other vehicles that present a significant cleanup challenge. More than three weeks after the train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, there are new concerns over possible contamination from a chemical that can stay in the environment for a long time. People near the area where the tanker cars carrying vinyl chloride were burned could have been exposed to a group of toxic compounds called dioxins. One scientist told the Associated Press that the smoke plume might have carried the compounds onto nearby farms. According to the World Health Organization, dioxins are mainly byproducts of industrial processes. They are linked to cancer and can affect reproductive and immune systems. While the compounds can get into human bodies through skin and lungs, the main path is through consumption of meat, dairy, and fish that have been polluted. Dioxins can persist in soils for decades and contaminate crops where they accumulate up the food chain. Residents, environmentalists, officials, and both U.S. senators from Ohio are calling for state and federal agencies to test around the site The Guardian reports some experts speculated that the EPA may not be testing for dioxins because it's difficult and expensive. 
William Shakespeare's works are timeless and universal because his themes are part of the human experience, from love, death, and jealousy, to ambition, power, and environmentalism. A new book says the Bard was deeply concerned about conservation and the exploitation of natural resources. In Shakespeare Beyond the Green World, Dr. Todd Borlick examines the dialogue, plots, and settings of plays and shows how Shakespeare was tackling issues like overfishing, mining, the fur trade, and the people's displeasure with actions being taken by the ruling classes. For example, Borlick says at the time Shakespeare wrote The Tempest with themes of exploitation in a far-off Caribbean island, there was much controversy at home about draining the fens, the vast wetlands in the eastern part of England, for agriculture and hunting for the wealthy. There was a lot of popular resistance to it at the time with acts of sabotage in what today some would categorize as eco-terrorism. Shakespeare often humanized animals that were hunted for furs worn by the elite and used settings to push back on environmental degradation, such as the blasted heath in Macbeth or overfishing in the North Sea in Pericles. According to Borlick, Shakespeare recognized that spending more time in nature is the antidote to human arrogance, and in plays like Macbeth and King Lear, sent his characters out into the wilderness to have an epiphany or comeuppance to smack down any notion that Earth's bounty is there for the taking. And finally, clowns take notice. Starting in 2024, balloons will be prohibited in Laguna Beach, California, because for that seaside community, plastic pollution is no laughing matter. The coastal town about 50 miles south of Los Angeles adopted an ordinance prohibiting the sale and use of balloons on public property, citing their damage to marine ecosystems and potential to start wildfires. Long after the birthday parties or graduation celebrations end, balloons can escape and get caught on tree limbs or tangled in power lines where they can cause outages or fires. Balloons are often made from either mylar or latex, the plastics in mylar balloons never biodegrade and instead break down into bits which can be ingested by wildlife. Latex balloons, which are made from rubber but treated with chemicals, are the most common type found in the stomachs of dead animals. Also, strings can strangle critters and many balloons contain foils or colorful dyes that make them tantalizing to wildlife. The move by Laguna Beach is intended to remove the amount of plastic trash on their scenic shoreline and is part of a growing trend in in the U.S., where several states have laws against releasing balloons. But we don't have to be party poopers. There are plenty of alternatives such as streamers or bubbles. And an added bonus, it will save helium, which is increasingly in short supply. That's it for this week in water. Support comes from Wright Water Engineers, providing water resources engineering in Colorado and beyond for more than 60 years. Projects, services, and resumes are online at rightwater.com. We now check in with KGNU's comment line and the listeners who share their thoughts about what they hear on KGNU. One week ago, I tried to listen to Alan Watts. The first 10 minutes of the program was broadcast. And then we got a glitch, and they broadcast again the first 10 minutes. And a voice came on saying, you're listening to KGNU, and we will switch to 
morning sound alternative at 9.30. So who's responsible for this screw-up? I'd really like to know. I've been a solar member since 1984. I'm considering dropping my support, and I will continue to do so if things don't get straightened out. Thank you very much. I was really sorry to hear this morning that we lost Buddha Bomb. Um, in my opinion, he's been around and been such a continuous presence that I think I am probably a lot of us thought he would be there indefinitely. Uh, he's one of the more dedicated and unique DJs I think the station has, although you know there are others that contribute quite a bit as well. I know in Cantalo is also omnipresent and does so many things, but uh, nobody did shows that sounded like Buddha bombs, and I just appreciate his uniqueness and his dedication during the late night hours when very few people want to venture out. I think he was always trying to find new sounds that were kind of taking us places we hadn't been before, and I really respect and appreciate that. Thanks for all you did, Buddha Bomb, and good journeys wherever you, you venture. Thanks much. If you'd like to make a comment on something you heard on KGNU, you can leave a message at our listener comment line at 303-447-9911. We play the messages back on Tuesday mornings at 825. That's it for today's Morning Magazine. Thanks to John Kellen, Steve Miller, Alyssa Palazzo, Alexis Kenyon, guest Professor Blake Reed, Jamie Sudler, and Franny Halperin for their contributions to today's program. I've been your host and producer, Shannon Young. Stay tuned for How on Earth. That's coming up after the news headlines from the BBC.